This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, The Breath of the Buffalo, recorded May 16, 1993, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. What is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. This was a poem by Crowfoot, a Blackfoot Native American Indian, 1890. So it comes out of a shamanic spiritual tradition. But it has a meaning that is found in all spiritual traditions, a teaching. You might say it's the teaching which begins the path, any path. The teaching is about impermanence. Life is like the breath of a buffalo in wintertime. What a beautiful image. You can just see that buffalo standing on the prairie. <gasps> you know how the breath is in the wintertime? Little cloud that just disappeared. The Buddha said, nothing is real, all is becoming. All things are becoming. They're all transitory, they're all ephemeral, they're all just like the breath of a buffalo. Images in Buddhism and Hinduism are like a dewdrop in the morning. It's just there for a little while and it's gone, it evaporates. Plato's whole teaching is about understanding that this world that we normally experience is a world of becoming, that's his word. He called all this the world of becoming. It's all impermanent transitory, it's ephemeral. In Hinduism, all this is the transformations of maya. Maya is a, the power of illusion. Transformation is a wonderful word. To transform, it means forms. Being created and disappearing, being created and disappearing. Everything's transforming from one thing into another, into another, into another. Nothing is permanent. The Quran says, this life is nothing but a sport and a pastime. It's all passing and permanent. The importance of this is that this is a major cause of our suffering. If we watch carefully, we see how we're always trying to grasp on to something, things we like, and push away things we don't like. And the teaching is just pointing out a simple fact of reality. This world is like waves. You wade out into the sea and try and grasp a wave. You can't do it. Or try to push one away, back. Try to hold it back. You can't do it. There's a story about one of the great Persian kings in the, in the time of the Greeks. I think it was Xerxes, who got so intoxicated with his own political power, his power to command, that he uh, decided one day he would try to command the tide to stay out. So he got with a, up with his whole court, and they saddled up on their camels or whatever, and they rode down to the seashore, and they set up their tents and so forth, and 
They carried Xerxes' throne out there on the cliff. And he sat on his throne and he commanded the tide not to come in. And of course the tide ignored him and came in. Well, he was furious, so he sent his slaves down there to whip the water. And they went down there and they beat the water severely. Now, notice, people are laughing here, chuckling, because this is madness, this is delusion. We recognize that in a situation like that. Anybody who thinks that they can go out to the sea and can command the tide to stop. But watch your own life. If that's madness, what about when we want to hang on to things? A job, a relationship. What about when we put all our... Uh, all our hopes for happiness in being able to cling to impermanent things. And when we're terrified of losing them and of the stuff that comes along that we don't like. Old age, sickness, death. What about uh, all the products that are sold on television? to ward off old age, for instance. You know, my favorite is the oil of Olay. This commercial was in last year. I don't think it's on anymore. The woman comes on. She says, I've heard it said you should grow old gracefully. But then I ask myself, why? Well, why? Because you're going to grow old and you only have two choices, gracefully or fighting it. And fighting it's going to produce tremendous amount of suffering. Does she think she's Xerxes? She's going to command old age to stay away? Or rub this magic potion on her face that takes the wrinkles out and that's going to be it? Notice it's a kind of madness. It's so pervasive at that level in our society. We don't think of it as madness. We think it's perfectly sane. But it, it's the same, uh, the same action. It's based on the same delusion that Xerxes had when he went to the sea and commanded the waves to stop. At the center, one of our fundamentals, the first fundamental, is only consciousness itself is real. The word reality here has the idea of something being permanent, fixed, something you can count on. We find this still in, uh, uh, for instance, in the word real estate. Real estate comes from the... Uh, feudal system where real wealth was land that was fixed. It was, you couldn't carry it off. To own land was to own real wealth. What is permanent and fixed in life? People have always searched for this because if you can actually find what is permanent, what is fixed, what doesn't change, what is real, and if that can bring you happiness, then you have permanent happiness, not transitory happiness. So one of the first teachings in all traditions, though, is that this world that we normally experience, nothing in it is permanent. Nothing in it is fixed. Nothing in it is real in that sense. It's all transitory. It's all changing. It's all ephemeral. And so it's really just a matter of logic. If you are looking for happiness, real happiness, lasting happiness, in this world, 
by trying to maintain some state of affairs, you're bound to suffer. There's no other alternative. You're bound to suffer. But we don't really understand this through our experience. Intellectually, it's easy to understand. Everything's impermanent. We say that, oh yes, everything's impermanent. But then we go off and we still behave as though that weren't true. A spiritual path does not truly begin until this insight sinks in. Or I should say, until this insight becomes part of your own personal experience. It's something to learn experientially. It's not enough just to know it intellectually. It does not change anything. It does not change your experience. It does not change your activity. You continue to act out of this uh, habitual delusion that happiness could be got if only I got the right oil of Olay. Or the right job, or the right car, or the right house, or the right whatever. So in all traditions, there's an emphasis on this teaching, particularly at the beginning, appointing to what is just a fact of life. And one of the ways that you can begin to make this insight your own is to really examine your experience, even though you know intellectually. To really think, now what, what are the forms of impermanence? For instance, in the early shamanic cultures, they recognized nothing was impermanent. Everything was transforming all the time. In uh, Mesopotamia and Samaria and Babylon and so forth, when they started really paying close attention to the stars, people started to imagine that the stars were fixed, permanent. The same patterns of stars, the same stars seemed to be there over generations. And they started to keep records and they could say, well, these, these stately stars move around in this great stately dance. And this became a kind of symbol for eternity. And actually, exoterically, people thought the stars were eternal. Well, today, we know they're not eternal. They're just as impermanent as anything else. By our time scale, it takes a long time for a star to be born and a star to die. But stars are born and they die. The whole galaxy is nothing but the breath of a buffalo. It's just on a vaster time scale. If you could go out there with a motion picture camera and you know, snap, I don't know what it take, one frame every billion years. That's how you create this uh, effect of speeding things up in, in movies. You ever see flowers, for instance, bloom in three seconds on the screen? They put a camera out there and it's time to only shoot one frame every, you know, hour or something. And so then over a few days while the flower is blooming, it's all compressed into a shorter period of time and you watch the screen, the flower goes, Zero. Well, if you could do that with a galaxy, you would see the same thing. You'd see it would really look like the breath of the buffalo. It'd be like a puff, just like that. Atoms. For two centuries, in this culture, people thought 
Well, atoms were eternal and real. Finally, they discovered the, the basis of reality. These little hard little things, like tiny little billiard balls that bopped around the universe, bumping into each other, and everything was sort of created out of that. But atoms are not permanent in quantum mechanics. We learned, uh, perhaps to our dismay, that atoms weren't permanent in 1945 at Hiroshima. They transform into energy. Not only aren't atoms permanent in that sense, but according to quantum mechanics, they don't even exist unless they're being observed. Or I should say they exist in a potentia, non-physically. You go look at it, the atom's there. Turn your back, it's gone. Bip, 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 bip. The whole universe, from a quantum mechanical point of view, is nothing but little drops of dew popping in and out of existence. The most fantastic vision of impermanence, perhaps, that human beings have ever come up with. Nothing solid at all. Mountains. Mountains look pretty permanent. Drive out to the Cascades, more or less the same this summer as last summer. But mountains change. Mountains aren't permanent. In Lone Pine, California, where I spent some time, it's very interesting. Because the Sierras, the high Sierras, rise out of the desert floor, and they're relatively young mountains. They're these sharp granite cliffs, uh, and they're very dramatic. And you come down from the high Sierras, and you go out the desert a little way, and it slopes off, and they're there's this, it looks like rubble when you're up on the Sierras. There are these sort of boulders and this, this rocky sort of formation about halfway down the valley. And actually, when you get down there, there are huge boulders and huge rocky formations. But from up above, it looks like this sort of rubble there. And they're the remnants of a very ancient Precambrian mountain range that's dying. This is like the, the last gasp of this mountain range. It's all crumbling away. So right there in that valley, you see this tremendous geological birth and death going on. It's really spectacular. What about generally the environment? This is something now we can really start to experience. It's rainy one day, sunny the next day. In Oregon, it's rainy and sunny all in one day or maybe two or three times a day. Constantly changing the weather. Clouds come in, go out, different formations of clouds. Jennifer and I were watching the sky the other night. It was really dramatic. This huge beach of cloud. And it was, the colors were all these uh, different shades of gray, really dark grays, to very, very light grays, to almost whites. And you could see it. There must have been a really strong wind up there. You could see this this beach sort of just receding across the sky, this huge arc of cloud and these darker clouds moving in, changing right there. It was better than anything on television, that one. That was great. Sunsets and sunrises. The temperature. 
all day long it's changing. Cool in the morning, hot, cool again. Everybody runs to the thermostat, you know, trying to get the temperature just right there to, you know, keep it, hold it, fix it. And then it gets too hot, you turn the thermostat down, and then it gets too cold. Back and forth, up and down, up and down. Everything in the environment's changing. Plants. This is springtime. It's, it's spectacular out here. Every time we go out in the front yard, new little buds are coming up here and there. In the fall, they'll all be crashing. All the leaves will be rushing back to the void. Animals. Yeah, you get that cute little kitten. Oh, it's so cute. And then it's the sour old puss cat. They've got one like that. <laughs> Oh, yes, Siddhartha, he was very cute. Ooh, do, 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 do. Now he's, he's still fun. But, you know, they think he's going to be like this forever. They don't know. They've got another cat who's an old sour cat. Pretty soon he's going to be like that. I know somebody who used to, every time her cat screw up, she'd run off and get another kitten. She ended up with six, seven cats. I mean, you know, they grow up pretty fast. This is all stuff everybody knows. I'm not teaching anything new. But we don't experience the world that way, generally. And one of the things to cultivate on a spiritual path is this awareness of the impermanence of things. When you look at a sunset, note, oh, impermanence. When you look at the flower blooming, note, impermanence. When you see that little kitten, note impermanence. Or that old cat on the downside, impermanence. All is impermanent. And it's cultivating that awareness that we really begin to learn the lessons that the great spiritual teachers of humanity have been trying to communicate. You begin to experience this for yourself, in yourself. Then when you turn inward, where it's the most startling and the, the place we least want to look, you notice what? Thoughts. All impermanent. One of the reasons you do this meditation is to see how impermanent thoughts are. Not only the thoughts themselves, which are constantly chattering away in our brains, but the contents of the thoughts. In other words, the the sort of overviews we have of things. What you thought about the world when you were 10 is different than you thought about the world when you were 15. It's different than you thought about the world when you are 25. At least I hope it is. If it isn't, it means you're not growing. Whole world views change. Even quantum mechanics, by the way, is going to change. That's not the last theory that's ever going to be developed impermanent. The breath of the buffalo. We get very attached to our thoughts, our way of seeing things, our way of judging things. We're right, they're wrong, that's it. All impermanent. Body sensations. <laughs> 
sort of on the borderline here, but between what in this culture we think is inside and outside, objective and subjective. Our bodies themselves are impermanent. Change. Transforming. Just look at a little infant. And look at a, an elderly person. I once saw a beautiful little, about a five-minute documentary. It wasn't, you could hardly call it a documentary. It was a series of stills. A film student, a woman had taken, of, or hadn't taken, but she had assembled them of her grandmother. It was the first generation of people were, you know, taking pictures at various stages in their lives, taking photographs. And she got these faces, starting with her grandmother as an infant, and then as a girl, and as a teenager, and as a young woman, and as an older woman, as a middle-aged woman, and getting older, and so forth. And finally, is this old, shriveled old woman. She lived to 85 or something. And she simply started filming these stills and dissolved from one face into the other, into the other, into the other. It was spectacular. You saw in five minutes just this woman's whole life, like a flower, uh, blooming and fading. Just the whole change. Wonderful. I wish we had that film here. It's a film of impermanence. But even moment to moment, how our bodies are changing. All the sensations that make up our bodies. Little tingles and pricks and aches and pains and uh, the feel of the wind or the air on your skin. The position of your hands and your feet and your legs and your head and your neck. All that change and constantly creating this little dance of sensation going on, all transforming, changing one into the other. To be observant of that is to understand this teaching. And then perhaps the most important thing in terms of our suffering is our emotions, our moods. One of the, our greatest delusions is that happiness consists of finding some mood, some emotion that is steady and stable, a pleasant, a nice emotion. One of those ones that we like. And getting rid of all those unpleasant ones. And most of our trying to fix states of affairs around us is that those states of affairs we feel then will respond to with this nice emotion. So you'll decorate your house, you know, with the nice colors and this and that, so that you'll, every time you'll be in that house, as you will be the first time you walk in, you'll have this wonderful sense of being pleasant and creative and uh, something you help design and, and this and that, and full of beautiful things. And you certainly do get a wonderful emotional response from that. But after you've lived in the house for a month, two months, six months, a year, two years, three years, after you've broken up with your spouse in that house and, you know, whatnot, you can't hang on to that first sense you have when you walk into your new house and are so pleased with yourself. Emotions are just like the breath of the buffalo. Come and they go. Our moods come and they go. Then you can watch really in detail how rapidly all this comes and goes. So even things like mountains, 
you have a general vague idea of something out there that's permanent, and then you have a, a, a vague idea that, uh, well, even though this isn't permanent over hundreds of thousands of years, it always looks the same to me. But if you look closely, it's never the same. Mount Jefferson in the morning of January 3rd is not the same as Mount Jefferson at noon of January 3rd, or at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, or at 6 o'clock at night, or at 11 o'clock at night, or midnight. And the next morning of January 4th, even though the sun's coming up and the color's similar, it's not ever going to be the same again as it was in the morning of January 3rd. Never, ever, ever. Just the play of color of light changes everything if we're observing. And again, great artists help us to see this. There's a, who is it, Monet or Manet? I always get them mixed up. Who painted the cathedrals at various times of the day? Do you know? I think it was uh, Chartres or Notre Dame, one of the Chartres. great cathedrals. Chartres. And he painted it just at various times of the day. The same angle, the same position, set up his easel the same way. And so he has this series of paintings. And all he changed was the color, as he saw it. Wow. It's spectacular. The amount of change from one picture to another. The general form that's more or less the same. The whole content of the form is just constantly changing. By becoming mindful, by becoming observant. This doesn't require changing any of your experience. A lot of people think the spiritual path is about, I'm going to change my experience. They, instead of putting oil of Olay in my face, I'll get a mantra. It's not about that. It's about just observing what is. About seeing for yourself, moment to moment. Oh, yes. Breath of the buffalo. If you want a good mantra, take that one. Notice. Ah, breath of the buffalo. Look up at the stars at night. Ah, breath of the buffalo. Watch when you're in a really tense, angry mood. Breath of the buffalo. Watch when you're feeling wonderful, comfortable, pleasant, relaxed. Breath of the buffalo. Bound to change. Bound to transform. It's through this experience that is affected by observation that you begin to realize the teachings of Crowfoot, of the Buddha, of Plato, of Jesus of Mohammed for yourself. Then they're not just intellectual teachings out there. They're not somebody else's words. Somebody else said something. This starts to become the quality of your experience just through awareness, not through changing anything. You no longer experience things as being so fixed, so solid, so permanent. Simply by paying attention. Just the way Monet paid attention to the light on the cathedral. Whereas everybody else walks by the cathedral and says, oh, they're short. That's been the same for centuries. Monet just looked. That's all. Just looked. Lo and behold, it's not. That starts to transform experience. The quality and nature of your experience, of your life, day to day, moment to moment, will start 
of itself to change. What is changing is only that your delusion is evaporating and you're beginning to see things as they really are. And when you start to do that, you yourself start to see and experience the futility of grasping and clinging and pushing away. You don't have to do anything. It's no different than the reason you don't go down and try to command the tide not to come in. It appears to you to be stupid and silly. You don't have to make any big effort to hold yourself back from going down there and commanding the tide not to come in. It just doesn't occur to you to go command the tide not to come in. Well, the same thing happens when you begin to experience the world as it really, truly is. Some people think this is a very pessimistic teaching. It's not pessimism at all. It's reality. And in fact, it's optimistic in the sense that if you begin to understand the reality, you will stop doing the things that cause you suffering. And then something else happens as well. When all this energy, when all this desire, with all this craving and longing that goes into trying to fix and grasp onto ephemeral things is released because it's just simply seen to be futile, attention itself is released. It doesn't have to judge everything pleasant or unpleasant. It doesn't have to see things in the old fixed manner and fashion. It can start to experience the beauty and the play of the world the way we experience music. We listen to sit down and put on a Mozart concerto. We don't have any expectation of of when you hear a nice little melodic line saying, oh, stop that, stop that there. Okay, stop the machine. Let's keep that one. Of course, the minute you stop the machine, it disappears, right? You can't fix that melodic line. That's the nature of music. The joy of music is that it flows. Let's say you like one particular note. Charlie Parker's a saxophone player, was a saxophone player. And he played some of the sweetest notes on the saxophone, the alto saxophone. You, you could not imagine a saxophone could sound so sweet. He once did an album with strings behind it. It's such a beautiful album. This is the jazz. And the way he played it so sweetly, it goes so absolutely beautifully with these strings. And there are notes there that you hear and you say, that note itself is so sweet. You know what happens if, if you sat down and start just hang on to that note instead of going, my, my, I can't imitate the note, but instead of going, it would go, and pretty soon you'd be running out of the room. A good modern form of torture. The essence of it is that it's the breath of the buffalo. That's why it's beautiful. So you just begin to cease an activity, a habitual activity. It's not doing something different. You just begin to cease this futile 
activity that always produces suffering. And then something else is revealed. This is why I say that there's no progress in the path. The path doesn't even really begin until you come to grips with this ephemeral and permanent nature of the world as we experience it. Once you come to grips with that, then delusion starts to shed its skins. Other things are revealed. So something else is revealed here, and that is that this whole play of transitory ephemeral phenomena is a play on a some what? I'm avoiding using the word thing here because all things are impermanent. A some what else that is real. The world of form becomes not only a world of transformation, it becomes a world of transparency and therefore transcendence. Every form starts to become a window, so to speak, to its own ground. We can call that God, we can call that Brahman, we can call that Tao, we can call that consciousness. Consciousness alone, consciousness itself, pure consciousness. Not consciousness divorced from form, consciousness someplace else than when for, where form is, but consciousness as the basis of form, as the content of form, the substance of form. That never changes. The Hindus have a very good metaphor for that. It's like the gold out of which all sorts of little ornaments are made. You take the same hunk of gold, you pound it into a little cup, pound it into a little statue of Shiva or Kali, pound it into earrings, almost anything you want, infinite amount of forms, whatever form you can think of, you can pound it into. But no matter how many different forms you pound it into, the nature of the gold remains the same. It's unchanging in the metaphorical sense. Because even gold is physically ephemeral. It's a metaphor that directs your attention to look through and beyond this play of form. What is the essential nature of this play of form? It is just consciousness itself. And in all this play of form, which is the play of consciousness itself, you will never find any I, self, ego, person who's going to vanish, who was ever born, who could possibly die, who could go anywhere. And to see that is to be relieved of the basic root cause of suffering, which is the suspicion that I, ego, person, 
this, something's going to happen to. The body's going to disappear. The body's going to go the way of the breath of the buffalo. Thoughts are going to go the way of the breath of the buffalo. Emotions are going to go the way of the breath of the buffalo. But consciousness is not going the way of the breath of the buffalo. The consciousness is what produces the breath of the buffalo. And that is who you truly are. And to see that is to understand at the end of the path what Lady Tsoigl said. That all this vast universe is nothing but my ornament. The mountains, the stars, the atoms, the plants, the animals, the weather, the sky, the trees, even the oil of Olay. But you never get to that insight without going through the other ones. As long as there's this delusion that anything here is fixed, permanent, or could be fixed or made permanent. This experiential delusion that determines our activity, that deter determines where our attention, our focus, and our energy goes in life, we can never step back and see the reality of it. This constant distraction. And the way you see is not to run away from the impermanence of the world. There's no place to run away to. You can go up into a cave in the Himalayas and it's just as impermanent up there. It's to look into impermanence, to look into phenomena, to look into things, experience, emotions, thoughts, sensations, to go into them deeper, really examine them. See if what Crowfoot said isn't true for yourself. Is life like a little firefly in the night? Or the breath of the buffalo in wintertime? Or the little shadow that runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset? When you know that for yourself, when you see the world that way, feel the world that way, experience the world that way, then you're really on a spiritual path. Then you're at the point of no return. Then things really start to change and transform. That's when you've made the teaching your own. So when you hear these teachings about impermanence or the transitory nature of things, which if you hang around the center, you will, or if you read the books in our library, you will, because it's said over and over again. Don't just say, oh, well, this is an interesting theory. This is, yes, of course, that's true, and ignore it. They are all fingers pointing to the moon. They're all instructions guiding you to examine your own experience. And that is what the spiritual path is all about.
Are there any questions or comments? Yeah. Well, I've had a really good example of this very recently. About 10 years ago, I spent a long time um, trying to find something that I could be secure in making a, a living. Um, took a lot of tests, did counseling, um, went and interviewed people, find out what jobs would be available, and decided to go into computers. And spent you know, three or four years going back to school and computers. Um, just on Thursday, I was laid off. So here I am without a job. I spent all the time over here. And plus it was something that my heart never has been in. And so I wasn't always feeling like I fit. It's a very good example, a very concrete example. And by the way, an example that causes most people a tremendous amount of suffering. The reason the economy is number one issue for Bill Clinton is because the people in this country are, are suffering. Because they're losing their jobs, they're losing the security they thought they had, do you know what I mean? The wealth of the country is not circulating the way it used to, if it's there at all. And people are all upset because they thought, you know, oh, I'm going to have this job for 20 years and then I'll be able to retire and I'll have my pension. They figured it all out early in life. They did just what you did. In fact, in a certain sense, you're lucky to find out, you know, earlier. Mm -hmm. This is not a teaching about not planning. And some people take it that way. Oh, well, I won't plan anything. I'll just go with the flow. It's a teaching about not being attached to the results of your planning. You make plans, you plan for a job, you go to school for a job, you get out of school, the job isn't there. If you've been attached to that expectation that it would be, you're going to suffer. If you're not attached to that expectation, if you know this is the nature of things, yeah, it would have been nice if you had the job, but this is the nature of things, then you don't waste any time suffering about it. Here you are now. Every moment has its own excitement, its own uh, challenges, its own beauty. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, she's gloating and making a mess of it. She's feel bad. The what? She's gloating. She's gloating? <laughs> you mean you're still stuck <laughs> in your job? <laughs> <laughs> Often this is the other thing. When we're attached to one expectation, the way things should be, we very often fail to see what a blessing it could be. Mm -hmm. That's how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I think this is a wonderful example because this is exactly what the Buddha is talking about when he talks about impermanence and taking this lesson to heart and understanding it. Because many people in our culture, they're on a spiritual path, they hear these teachings, but then they lose their job, they're laid off, and they forget all about the teaching. Suddenly to them, that's all sort of abstract nonsense. But don't you understand? I've lost my job. This is terrible. Well, yes, it is unpleasant, it's a challenge, it's a situation you have to deal with, but, but what did you expect? There are people who go through life bitter and disappointed because nothing worked out the way they wanted it to. Their whole lives are ruined and spoiled because it's one disappointment after another, after another, after another. It could have been one challenge after another, after another, after another. It could have been one, two, three, four chapters of a great adventure, one after another, after another. You see the difference? 
It's nothing to do with actually what happened. It's the difference of what their expectation was, a deluded expectation. But to know deeply in your experience that things are impermanent, here it is again, the breath of the buffalo. What's the next breath going to be? It's kind of hard to say what you're attached to, what you're not attached to, because it's something that you have to do. You know, like clothing. I don't know if I'm describing it right. You have to have certain, you have to wear clothing to be attached to you. No, 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 wait a minute. This is a very good example here because this is the difference of attachment and not. Uh, in this society, it's a convention to wear clothing, right? And there's no problem about wearing clothing. And so you wear clothing and, uh, you know, you walk around. Now, supposing your house is on fire, right? In the middle of the night and you're sleeping in the nude. And the house is already half gone. There isn't time to do anything but just dive out the window, right? And then you dive out the window and you're standing on the street and all the fire trucks pull up with their lights flashing on you and all the neighbors gather around. And here you are standing stark naked. Now, the question is, you're already going to be have a, enough suffering with the fact that you lost your house and everything in it. On addition, on top of that, are you going to be suffering because you happen to have no clothes on? That's exactly right. Depends upon the attachment. If you're attached to the idea that you always, under all circumstances, have to have clothes on in public, that something is really awful about not having them, then when you're in a situation, you know, where you're just forced into that, that attachment is going to cause you tremendous suffering. But if you understand that wearing clothes is just a convention, and uh, there are a lot of good things to say for the convention, by the way. I'm not against the conventions. I'm, in fact, all for conventions but you understand that it is just a convention, then when that moment comes in your life where you're deprived of that convention, there's no suffering because that convention was ephemeral. It seems like in the convention you can be decided by, decided by the culture you're in, too. It is. According to this culture, it's convention. Another culture you can say is uh, pride or uh, a great amount of attachment. Or something like that. Well, I mean, in why different cultures have different conventions about clothing is... A whole other subject that you know you have to study anthropology and sociology to, to try to decipher and it's not at all important spiritually the only thing that's important spiritually is to understand that it is a convention this is another thing with our culture we get attached to uh, certain cultural forms that we think are permanent this is the way people are should be do you know what i mean and then if we have contact with people from another culture there's a lot of suffering because they don't have the same conventions, and we're all attached to our way of doing things, you know? I mean, it gives rise to whole masses of suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Not understanding that and being attached. That's the whole thing. There's nothing wrong with cultural forms. You couldn't do without them. It's that attachment that your way is the fixed way, the only way, the right way. You see what I mean? That's what causes the problem. You watch people travel. This is interesting. And not just Americans, but Americans are easier to observe because we know more what's going on with them. The Americans that enjoy traveling, enjoy the culture, are the Americans that aren't attached to their way of doing things, are open to new experiences, do you know what I mean? Are there to learn and to see how this play of phenomena works. Yes, the people who have desperate suffering are the people who come, you know, with their own set of conventions and everything, and and then they're, of course, disappointed and have tremendous anxiety because the culture isn't that way. They carry their little prison with them.
this is why I say this teaching is not a pessimistic teaching, but oh, well, it's terrible. Everything's being born and dying. It's a, really a teaching that liberates you from suffering. If you really, you know, apply it to your life. Well, if there are no more questions, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. Uh, and you're welcome to stay and have tea and check out the library as usual.